Take a Bible this morning and find Philippians chapter 3. We're going to pick up this morning right where we left off last week. Last week we looked at Philippians 3, 1 to 3. And we broke this passage up because it's just a little bit too long to cover in one Sunday morning. Really, Philippians 3, 1 all the way to verse 11 is sort of a self-contained thought. And so we're going to pick up sort of right where we left off last week and finish this thought. Before we jump in, we're going to talk about context just a little bit, review a few things we talked about last week, and uh, mention a few things that will help you understand this passage. In Acts 15, you read a description about the very first church council. And at that church council, there's a group of people met together in Jerusalem, and they're discussing the status of Gentile converts, non-Jewish people who are coming to faith in Jesus. And the question was, do they have to obey all the Old Testament laws in order to follow Jesus? Meaning, just a few examples, do they have to observe the dietary laws about what you could eat and what you could not eat? Do they have to keep all of the civil laws that sort of governed how Israel was supposed to function as a nation? Because Israel was really not an independent nation at this point. They were under the authority of Rome. So how did that work? Did they have to keep all of those laws? Sacrificial laws. If you want to follow Jesus, do you have to keep going to the temple? It was still standing at the time. And did you have to bring sacrifices of lambs and animals and incense and all of those different things? And the big one, we talked about this last week, the big one for Gentile men who were converting to faith in Jesus was, do you have to be circumcised? And most of those Gentile men just said, we're not doing it. And there was a group of Jewish teachers who said, well, you've got to do it. And so this debate went back and forth and they had this council. Peter, Paul, and James led the church in Acts 15 in deciding that Gentile converts did not have to become Jewish in order to follow Jesus. So they're talking about these issues and they bring up the dietary laws and you can just sort of imagine them discussing and saying, well, you know, when Jesus was on the earth before he died and went to heaven, Jesus himself said, it's not what goes into you that makes you unclean, but it's what comes out of you that makes you unclean. And Peter probably spoke up and told them about this vision that he had had where God said, don't declare these things unclean anymore. And so they say, no, you don't have to, you don't have to keep the dietary laws. And they start talking about these civil laws and they say, well, you know, you remember Jesus, he said stuff like render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. That's not really part of the Jewish civil code, but Jesus said, you know, if you owe Caesar taxes, then pay him taxes. And, you know, Paul probably pipes up and he says, I I think, paraphrasing Romans 13, we just ought to submit to the governing authorities because those authorities are instituted by God. So they say, no, you don't have to keep these these civil laws. And they talk about sacrificial laws. And you can imagine James or somebody piping up and saying, well, you remember when when Jesus died, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and this access was created to God. And it seems like we shouldn't offer these sacrifices anymore. And you read about that in the book of Hebrews that Jesus has offered this final sacrifice. And then they also talk about the issue of circumcision. And these pillars of the church, Peter, Paul, and James, they sort of lead the church in deciding No, Gentile converts do not have to obey all of these Old Testament laws if they want to follow Jesus, including circumcision. And I know for you and me, this seems like, what does this have to do with us today? Like, that seems like settled history. We've sort of all agreed. You don't have to be Jewish if you want to follow Jesus. Why is this such a big deal? Why do we need to talk about it? Why do we need to understand it? And I want you to understand it is a big deal. 
Not necessarily because of the specifics that they were debating, but because of the heart of the issue that they were debating. And the central issue in all of this debate is, or was, what is the role that our works play in salvation? Meaning, to be saved, do we need Jesus plus our own good works, things that we contribute, or, as we just sort of sang together, I hope we all agree, do we believe Jesus is enough? Jesus is enough. Or do you need to add some of your own works to it? And Paul picks up this issue. He's talking about this debate. It's an ongoing debate. And the big idea of our passage this morning is very simple. Righteousness before God comes only through faith in Christ. The righteousness that leads to salvation, righteousness before God, comes only through faith in Christ, not through keeping Old Testament laws or being really good people or showing up to church on Sunday morning or anything else you want to fill in that blank. It only comes through faith in Christ. So let's read this passage. We're going to read what we read last week to pick up the thought, and we'll go all the way from Philippians 3, 1 to verse 11. Paul says this, inspired by the Spirit. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God in glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Let's pray. Father, we have sung this morning about your spirit that inspired the words of Holy Scripture, that convicts us as we read Scripture. Father, we've sung about your spirit, the one who moves us to be people who worship in spirit and in truth. Father, we've sung about Jesus and his glory and his beauty and his goodness and his sufficiency. 
And Father, we pray that you would help us to read into this ancient debate and to understand and to see clearly how Paul is driving us to Jesus and to Jesus alone. Not to any good thing that we can bring to you, but to Christ alone and who he is and what he's done for us in his life and his death and his resurrection. Father, help us to see Jesus clearly this morning. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So last week we talked about standing for the truth of the gospel. We looked at verse 1, 2, and 3. How do we stand as a church, as Christians, as families, how do we stand for the truth of the gospel? And this morning we're asking a related question, a similar question. We're saying, how does Paul summarize the gospel? What is the gospel that we're supposed to stand for? So last week was a little bit putting the cart before the horse, saying, this is how you stand for the gospel. Now let's make sure we all understand the gospel as Paul summarizes it here in Philippians 3. So how did Paul summarize the gospel message? Three simple ideas. Number one, our quote-unquote good deeds are absolutely worthless in terms of our standing with God. Paul wanted the Philippians to understand that, and you need to understand that this morning. All of our, and I put it in quotes, sort of tongue-in-cheek, so we all understand, our good deeds, the things that we think we can bring to God, are absolutely worthless in terms of our standing with God. Paul lays out his spiritual resume here, right? And Paul himself sort of boasts a little bit and says, I've got a better resume than any of you guys. If anybody thinks they can earn their way with God, then I have the pedigree and I have the accomplishments to earn it. And just look at how he lays it out in verse 4 to 8. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day, the exact day that the Old Testament said Jewish boys were supposed to be circumcised. He's saying, down to the letter of the law from birth, this has been part of my life. He says, I'm of the people of Israel. Meaning, I'm not just a descendant of Abraham, because you remember Abraham had two sons that became two nations. And I'm not just a descendant of Isaac, because you remember Isaac had two sons that became two nations. But he's saying, I'm a descendant, a true descendant of Israel, of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And you remember, Jacob was the one that God renamed and gave him the name Israel. And he says, this is my line. I can trace it all the way back. Abraham, Isaac, in Jacob. He says, I was of the tribe of Benjamin. And most of us don't know much about the tribe of Benjamin, but let me just tell you why Paul would mention the tribe of Benjamin. If you go all the way back to the original Benjamin, you'll learn that he was one of his father's favorite sons. One of the favorites, the youngest. His father loved him more than his other brothers. You go back and you read about Benjamin, you find that the first king of Israel came from the tribe of Benjamin. He wasn't the greatest king, but he was the first. And Benjamin was proud about that honor as a, a tribe and as a family. The first king came from our tribe. A few years later, when David was king, it was the tribe of Benjamin alone that was loyal to David when there was a coup led by David's son Absalom. Benjamin was loyal. And then you might remember during the exile, God saved his people through a Jewish girl named Esther and her uncle named Mordecai. And guess what tribe Mordecai came from? Benjamin. They were proud about that. God used our tribe to save our people during the exile. And then you can read about the people coming back from the exile. And you read about two tribes coming home, Judah and Benjamin. 
So the people in Benjamin said, hey, we're not like Issachar, who just sort of disappeared into history. We're not like Dan, who led the people in idolatry. Being from the tribe of Benjamin is something to be proud of. And Paul says, that's my my pedigree. That's my lineage. He says, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews, probably meaning I actually speak the language of my people. Most of us, when we've been taken into exile and we've been Hellenized by the Greeks, they just speak Greek, a foreign tongue. And you even read about some of the exiles who come back to the promised land, can't even understand the scriptures when they're being read in their language. Paul says, I speak our language. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee. We don't think of that as something to brag about because we look back at history with a different perspective and we know how the Pharisees responded to Jesus. We think of Pharisee and hypocrite as being synonymous. But in Paul's day, that was a title of prestige and respect and honor. And he says, I'm part of that group. It was a limited group. There was a set number of how many Pharisees there could be. And Paul says, I was in that club, a persecutor of the church. When something arose that didn't seem quite right, I was zealous enough in my faith to stand against it. And in regard to the law, he says, I was blameless. You couldn't find something in the law to throw against me that would actually stick. That's my resume. And at one point in time, Paul took a lot of pride in that resume. And then he says something that's so surprising now. He says, I count all of that loss. I used to put it over here in the gain column as a positive, and now I look at it, not only is it not a gain, but it's actually a loss. It's not just a positive, and it's not just a neutral nothing thing, but it's a negative. Three times he says, I count it loss, I count it loss, I count it loss. And then he says it's just rubbish. Some of your translations use different words, but the idea is that it's dung, to use a church-appropriate word. And you understand, in Paul's day, this really wasn't a church-appropriate word. And he's using this word to make a point. All of this stuff in my life that I used to think so highly of and used to be so proud about, it's just a pile of dung. It's rubbish. 2009, I was finishing my PhD degree at Southern Seminary. And the guy on the right there was my PhD supervisor, Dr. Lawless. And I'd done all my classwork, and I had done all my tests and everything. All I had to do was write my dissertation. And so Dr. Lawless at the time was traveling with the International Mission Board. Every weekend, he would get on a plane and fly somewhere, and he was doing consultations for for missions and with different churches. And so here's the routine we got in. During the week... I would start to work on a chapter of my paper, and I would write it out, type it out, get it all where I thought it, man, I was proud of it, right? Then I would email it to him, and on Friday, his secretary would print it out and hand him the hard copy when he walked out to get on the airplane. He would put it in his briefcase, and on the plane, he would just color red all over it, just all over, red everywhere. Red, 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 do it on the plane. He'd come back Monday morning because he had to teach. He would give it to his secretary. She would scan it, and she would email it to me, and I would get this red document, and I would print it out. And then during the week, I would try to fix all the red, and I would work on it, and I'd send it back to him. She would print it out Friday, and we just went round and round and round and round, week after week after week after week. And in the process of that, every time I sort of had a new version of my paper, 
it was my most prized possession on the earth. Like to have the most current, the best, the cleanest copy of this work that I was trying to to achieve, it was my most prized possession. But then a week later, it wasn't much value to me at all. But I still couldn't throw it away. So I got all these papers, and I just start putting them in the corner of my office, and they start piling up. And after a while, it's about six inches high, and then after a while, it's about a foot high, and then it's about three feet high. I'm telling you, by the time I was done, I had a stack of paper in the corner of my office that would look me in the eyeball. Just paper, piled up. Most of it red, colored in with red all over it. And at the time, those things were so valuable to me because I had worked so hard on it. I had vested so much into it. I was so proud of it. All of those things tied up in those papers, just papers. And the moment I graduated, I started to look at that stack of papers differently. It wasn't really a prized possession at all. It's just a stack of papers. And it was just sort of junking up my office. So I didn't know exactly what to do with all those papers. I forgot to bring these in here, so Kelly went and got them for me. I pulled some out of my desk. I've got some. If you want to read one of the previous versions of my dissertation, I know you all want to do that. Here's some of it right here. Page 101 to uh, about 116 if you're interested in something to read this afternoon. So here it is, and I've still got it. Stacks and stacks and stacks and stacks of it. And all this paper that I just, it was so valuable to me. And then it just becomes basically scrap paper. And there was a time in my life, if somebody would have taken the most current copy, these exact pages right here, and messed with them, I think I would have lost my mind. I mean, really would have lost my mind. But then graduation comes, and it's scrap paper, and you know what it becomes? It It becomes coloring paper for my kids, and they do things like this with it. They draw a nice little church building on it. And I display it in my office. And the backside that you don't see is my paper. Who cares about the paper? Nobody cares about that. Care about the picture. Picture is valuable. Or here's another picture. I like this one. I think that this is our family right here. Um, except there's a couple of, there's six big ones and then there's two little small ones. And I'm hoping that those are baby dolls, not babies. But there's another one. And so I've got pictures like this. In fact, this week, if you'd have been in my office on Wednesday, Clayton was there with me Wednesday morning, my youngest kiddo, and uh, he pulled a big old stack of my dissertation papers out and he sat them down. And this was his art project while we were waiting on Mother's Day out. He would take one marker, pull the lid off, draw one circle on it, and then look at me and say, can I throw this away? (laughs) Yeah, you can throw that away. So he'd take it, throw it in the trash. Come back to my stack of prized papers Pick a different color. Pull the lid off. One circle. Hold it up. Can I throw this away? Yeah, you can throw that away. Go over. Throw that away. We did it about 20 times. I got rid of 20 pieces of paper Wednesday morning. I don't know the best thing to compare this to, but I hope you're getting the idea that Paul says, look, there's all this stuff in my life that I was so proud of, and it was so valuable to me, and I really thought I was doing something. And then something changed. The something that changed is Paul met Jesus. And he looked at that big pile of accomplishment that he used to be so proud about. And he said, that's just a pile of garbage. It is absolutely 
worthless compared to knowing Jesus Christ. And when he saw the glory of Jesus, he looked on his quote-unquote good works differently. He looked on them like the prophet Isaiah looked on them. Isaiah 64, 6. All of our quote-unquote righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. They're nothing. They're not gain. They're loss. So the first thing you need to see is our good deeds are absolutely worthless in terms of our standing with God. Number two. Righteousness that leads to salvation does not come from our ability to keep God's law. Rather, it comes from God to those who have faith in Jesus. That's verse 9. And verse 9 is really the heart of this passage. In verse 9, Paul says that he wants to be found in him, in Jesus. Not having a righteousness of his own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Jesus, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. If you're going to understand verse 9, the heart of this passage, you really got to wrap your brain around the word righteousness. And I'll just say right out of the gate, there's a problem for most of us when we read that word righteousness. The problem is we like to put righteousness on a sliding scale. Okay? We like to think of righteousness as, okay, said some bad words today, thought some bad things, I took five minutes off work when I was supposed to be working hard, so that moves me towards the unrighteous side of the scale. And then the next day we say, oh, I didn't say any bad words today, and I I, uh, bought coffee for the lady behind me at Starbucks and didn't even tell her who, I mean, just just did it because I'm so nice. And we come up with these good things and we think, okay, that bumps me down to the, the more righteous side. And we play this dopey game of sliding back and forth on some sort of imaginary scale of righteousness when the Bible says, look, Righteousness, it's not really a sliding scale. It's kind of an all-or-nothing proposition. Either you are or you're not. It's like my poor Jayhawks last night. Thank you to those of you who have rubbed it in this morning. Made me feel better. They lost. And I can walk around and say, well, we should have won. Well, we could have won. Well, we're really the better team. Well, we really had the better season. And what's the bottom line? You lost. That's all there is to it. You win or you lose. There's nothing in the middle. And Paul's saying, look, when we're talking about righteousness, it's all or nothing. You don't get a little bit of righteousness or lose a little bit of righteousness. You're either righteous or you're not. So how many of you this last year went to a UTPB football game? Raise your hand. Man, they were fun. This was my seats. I sat on the bad guy's side over with the visitors, right above the students. And I'll just tell you this, little free promo, Steve's in the back, give you a little pointer. If you want double entertainment, you can watch the students and the football at the same time from this side. You get a perfect view of what's going on. And uh, maybe don't take your kids to all the games, but the students are down there. And uh, it's, a fu- it's a lot of fun. Went to UTPB games. And you remember the excitement of that. And some of you remember before the season started, maybe some of you bought one of these shirts. Like before the first game, they're selling out of shirts that say undefeated all time. (laughs) We've never lost a football game. Our record is perfect. And you say, oh, that's kind of silly because you've never won anything either. But okay, undefeated. Then the first week, I think we played Sol Ross the first week, and we won. And then you can really say, we have only won and never lost. We have a perfect record, 1-0. and And then the next week, we play Arizona Christian, I think was their 
their team, the firestorm or something like that. And their fans were loud. Man, they were loud and just obnoxious because they sat right behind me. But we beat them too. And we're 2-0. UTBB's 2-0. Undefeated all time. And then week three, played the mighty Buffalo from WT. Great things come from WT, I'm just saying. It's a tornado that night. We had to play the game on Sunday. And you're not undefeated anymore. You lost. And lost a few more games after that. Never again can you with pride wear your shirt that says undefeated all time. It's worthless. Wash a car with it. I mean, dry dishes with it. I don't know. Doesn't matter how many games we win this year. Hope we win a lot. Doesn't matter how many conference titles we win or national championships we win or whatever else we win. Never again can you say we are undefeated all time. It's all or nothing. And when you're talking about righteousness in the Bible, you've got to understand it is an all or nothing proposition. There is no sliding scale. Jesus put it this way in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Righteousness is akin to perfection. Either you are or you're not. Either there's perfection or there's something less than perfection. Either there's righteousness or there's something less than that. But there is no gray in the middle. And when you get this in your brain, you really start to understand this sliding scale stuff is nonsense. I don't have a chance to earn righteousness before God. And Paul understood it, and Paul said it this way in Galatians 3, talking about earning righteousness. All who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. All of them. Not like 90% and we're grading on a curve. If you don't do all of it all the time in your words, in your deeds, in your thoughts, in your emotions, in all of it, then you've fallen short. And you don't have something a little bit less than righteousness. You have unrighteousness. And it's one of the two. The good news is, we read in Philippians 3, that the righteousness that leads to salvation, righteousness before God, doesn't come by our efforts to keep God's laws, but it comes through faith in Jesus. It's a very simple idea. When Jesus lived on this earth, he lived a life of perfect righteousness. Not only did he never sin, which is amazing, but he also always did what he should have done in every situation, earning righteousness. And when he died on the cross, it wasn't for his own sins because he had none. It was for our sins. And Paul says, when you put your faith in Jesus, this exchange takes place. Your sin is counted as paid for by Jesus, and the righteousness that he earned is counted as yours. And you switch. Maybe the most important paragraph ever written, ever inspired by the Holy Spirit, is Romans chapter 3. And this is how Paul describes it in Romans 3. He says, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. You don't earn righteousness by keeping God's law. The law and the prophets bear witness to it. He's talking about the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Put the next slide up for me. There is no distinction 
All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and they are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You switch. Sin for righteousness. And a lot of people read what Paul has to say in Philippians 3. He says the same thing in Philippians 3 in shorter version. Verse 9, having a righteousness not of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends in faith. And they say, it's too easy. It's too easy. It's what these Judaizers were saying to Paul and to his churches. It's too easy. You can't just say, I'm going to put my faith in Jesus, and my sin is counted as paid, and his righteousness counts for me. It's too easy. It can't be that easy. My response to those people, or to you if you're wrestling with that, is to say there's nothing easy about it. It wasn't easy for Jesus to earn righteousness. He suffered, not just on the cross, but throughout his life, earning righteousness. And it certainly wasn't easy when he died on the cross for your sins, taking the wrath of God that should have fallen on you and should have fallen on me. There's nothing easy about it. But it is God's grace. God's grace is when God gives you the opposite of what you deserve, in spite of yourself. When he owes you damnation and he gives you salvation. When he owes you punishment and he gives you the righteousness of his son, giving you the opposite of what you deserve. It's God's grace. It's not because of our ability to keep God's law, but it's for those who have faith in Jesus. The center of this idea about receiving this righteousness, I don't want you to miss this thought. The center of it is knowing Jesus. That's how Paul grounds salvation in Philippians 3, verse 10. And he even says the same thing in verse 8. He talks about the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Verse 10, he says, I want to know him. You and I know that social media creates the illusion that we know a lot of people. And really all we know is a few things that they want us to know about them. We know a few selected things about people. But honestly, people that we actually know, that list is much shorter than your friends list on Facebook. And Paul's talking about not praying magical prayers and then you get righteousness. He's not talking about walking down magical aisles where you suddenly get this righteousness. He's not talking about getting baptized in magical waters where somehow you get this righteousness. He's saying, when you know Jesus, not just about him, but you know him, you receive the righteousness of God that comes to those who have faith. In Jesus, it's not according to works of the law. It's not according to what you can or can't do or have done or haven't done, but it's according to what Jesus has done for you. Last idea is this. How does Paul summarize the gospel? The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is alive in believers today. He wants to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection. You think, what amazing power God has, has that he can raise Jesus from the dead. And Paul's saying, I want to know that now. I want to experience it 
now. I want to live in that power now. And I'll give you just a few examples of what that looks like, okay? Some big Bible words that you need to know, whether you're a kiddo or a senior adult or somewhere in the middle, these are words you need to know. You see this power in regeneration, being born again. Regeneration is not something that you do. It's something that God does to you. He causes you to be born again. And when you see a person turn from their sin and turn to Jesus in faith, that's because God's power is at work in them. It's not because they're smarter than the person who didn't turn to Jesus in faith. It's not because they're more spiritual than the person who refuses to turn from their sins. It's because God's power is at work in them. Paul explains it in Ephesians 2. You can read it later. He says, we were dead in our sins and God made us alive. Dead and he gave us new birth. Regeneration is God's power. Perseverance happens according to God's power because of God's power. Philippians 1.6, Paul says, The one who began a good work in you will be faithful to bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. And in chapter 2, he says, It is God working in you so that you can work out your salvation with fear and trembling. When you look at the people in this room and you see people who have followed Jesus faithfully for year after year, decade after decade, you don't need to go pat them on the back and sort of hand them a spiritual medal and say, man, we're proud of you. You say, that's God's power at work in their life. That's God bringing to completion what he started in their life. That's God working in somebody according to his power so that they can work out their salvation with fear and trembling. One last example is resurrection. And I don't mean Jesus's, I mean ours. Resurrection is a result of God's power. 1 Corinthians 6.14, God raised the Lord and he will also raise us up by his power. He raised Jesus and he will raise us. Meaning when we have a funeral, we go out to the cemetery and we put somebody in the ground We believe if that person is a believer in Jesus, we have confidence, we have faith that God will raise them up just like he raised Jesus from the dead. And Paul's saying, look, God's power, the power that raised Jesus from the dead, it is alive and well today and he wants to live in it and experience it. And my hope for you and my prayer for you is that you know that power, that you've experienced it, that you're living in it and walking in it. If that's happened in your life, it's going to look like the person who says, all these good things that I could offer to God are just a pile of rubbish. And I count all of these things as loss so that I can gain Jesus. Not just praying a prayer or walking an aisle or getting wet in a baptistry, but knowing Jesus and being found in him. If that's your hope this morning, then Paul's prayer for you and my prayer for you is that you stand in that gospel and that you stand for that gospel. And if you sit here this morning and you say, man, I'm churched, I'm religious, I've done lots of spiritual things in my life, but I don't know Jesus. Or you say, I'm still trying to come to God with my hands full of all these good things I want to offer him. You got to see that stuff is rubbish. And you got to put your faith in Jesus. And I hope that you would do that today. Let me pray for you and we'll be finished. Father, we love you. We're grateful for your power in our lives. 
your power that gives us new life, new birth, your power that causes us to persevere and to endure, and to do exactly what Paul is calling us to do here, and that's to stand for the gospel. Father, I pray for those of us who have put our hope fully and squarely in Jesus, and I pray that your power would continue to be real in our lives. Father, I pray for those in the room who have never trusted in Jesus. They've never stopped coming to you with this this offering of quote-unquote good deeds, and I pray that today they would see their good deeds as filthy rags and as rubbish, and that they would see Jesus as gain. Father, be honored as we lift our voices and we sing one more song. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.